I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. This week on The Trade Guys, we're back, at least some of us are back from the beach, and we're going to talk trade policy, U.S. Ambassador Catherine Tai's visit to Iowa, we'll talk Russia sanctions, and we will talk Taiwan, all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. Welcome back. We've all been getting some sun and some surf, and Scott is currently getting some sun and some surf, and he was kind enough to tap in to the trade guys today. So welcome. Thanks. Always happy to be here. And of course, I'd like to start with a shameless plug if I could. Absolutely. By all means. Once a year, Bill and I run a course. It's an online seminar. We call it Crash Course in Trade Policy with the Trade Guys. It's coming up uh, in less than a month. September 19th and 20th are the dates. We cover uh, all aspects of U.S. trade policy and the key issues facing the administration. It's a relatively small class. It's time efficient. It will be two half days on Zoom for participants. But people have liked it in the past. We welcome you to take a look at it. For more information or to register, go to csas.org, executive education, and look under it for the listing under the global policy courses. Thanks. Hope to see you there. It's such a great class, people. Sign up, sign up now and sign up your friends because you don't want to miss this one. Meanwhile, we've got a Trade Guys episode to do, so let's get to it. Let's talk Taiwan. The U.S. recently announced the launch of trade dialogues with Taiwan. Is this a bilateral version of IPEF or is it something different, guys? It's a bilateral version of IPEF. And I had mixed feelings about it. I I think from the political standpoint, it's a disappointment for Taiwan because they wanted to be part of IPEF. And I think the main reason they wanted to be part of IPEF is they wanted the international recognition of being part of a, of a group of large, significant economies. Other, co- other countries indicated to the United States that they would not be able to join IPEF if Taiwan were in because of regional politics, basically, and, and Chinese reaction. So they're not in. The saving note, I think, for Taiwan is by doing it separately with the United States, they may actually get a better deal on the specifics of, of an agreement. It's sort of the same as IPEF in terms of what they're looking at. No market access, similar pillars. I think, though, that the Taiwanese are going to be disposed to be agreeable because they want to have agreements because agreements reaffirms their stature. And I think the United States, given the way the Chinese have reacted to Speaker Pelosi's visit, I think the, the U.S. is inclined to show support for Taiwan. So it seems to me this is a negotiation that's very likely to have a happy ending and where the Taiwanese might actually get more out of it than they would have as simply one of 14 or 15 IPEF members. But it appears that what they're not going to get out of it is enhanced market access because the U.S. is still not putting that on the table. You know, I, I don't think that's terrible in and of itself, mostly because of the backdrop. The backdrop for me is that the United States and Taiwan have had an ongoing trade dialogue called a Trade and Investment Framework Agreement that was first signed in 1994. So if you've gone nowhere in, what, what's that, 28 years, you're probably going to go nowhere in the next couple of years. <laughs> just, that's just predicting the future from a fairly straight line of nothing in the past. So, Ah, uh, but Scott, I, that was then. This is now. The politics well, is different, I think, don't you? The, true. I think the politics are improving. With the TIFA, we always got bogged down on agriculture. Most recently on an ingredient used to get uh, hogs more lean before butchering, 
called rectopamine, but there's always seems to be some stumbling block in the agriculture trade side that has prevented the TIFA from actually materializing into a real agreement. Well, I agree with Bill that it's unfortunate they're not part of the broader agreement. I do think that this may actually materialize in something you can call an agreement that's beneficial to both the United States and Taiwan. We'll see. Well, you know what I was thinking, guys? Maybe the trade guys should plan a visit to Taiwan, but do you think it would cause an international incident the way Nancy Pelosi's visit would happen? You know, I mean, like, seriously, like, I think we got to get over there. Well, we'd probably never be invited to China. Yes. Well, that's okay, right? Sounds like a great opportunity if you get avoid having our plane shot down on the way in. So, <laughs> Trade guys cause international incident. Big shout out to the greatest trade gal of all time, Emily Benson, our awesome producer, who scrambled to put all this together, talking Taiwan. Taiwan accounts for over half of global market share of semiconductors in the U.S., is including Taiwan and its chip for alliance with Korea and Japan. Does this signal a policy change, guys? I don't think so. I think the alliance, if you will, that the U.S. is trying to construct is mostly about subsidy deconfliction. You know, what we've got are countries, U.S., Korea, Japan, and Taiwan in this case. We all support our industries. We just passed the CHIPS Act. The Koreans and the Japanese, I think, and the Taiwanese, they want to support their own industries. And there's a, a concern that we'll end up doing redundant overlapping support that will just get in the way of the marketplace and produce either not so much more chips than we need, but emphasize either the wrong ones or over support some companies at the expense of under supporting others. And so uh, deconfliction, I think, is a good strategy. And that's what it's about. I think there is a separate effort with Japan and Korea and the EU, the Netherlands in particular, to coordinate on export controls because those are the countries that make the equipment that is used to make the chips. Taiwan makes the chips. Taiwan makes the most advanced chips, but they make them with uh, equipment from those other countries. So an export control regime would involve sort of a different subset of of nations. But Bill just got on the what I think is the key issue, which is coordination on export controls. This is the leading edge of technology. It's what we have the greatest interest in keeping out of the hands of our opponents. I, I do think it's a reasonable step to include them in this alliance, and I hope we're good result. Well, it also seems like there isn't much in terms of this bilateral, although China's really upset. So what recourse does China actually have if the U.S. pursues deeper negotiations with Taiwan, and what do you guys see as the risks for the United States in this space? If I were in Ambassador Tai's shoes, I would offer China the ability to reform their economy and participate bilaterally with the United States in a similar dialogue and focus on transparency, focus on all the things that the economic framework focuses on. Which, of course, is anathema to China, but that's at least the way I'd introduce it. We're basically saying, this is our policy for the region. We think it's good for everybody. We think it will be good for you. So let's start talking. And would they buy that? No, of course not. No, they won't buy it. If I were the Chinese, I would, A, continue to do what they're doing, which is to attack the negotiation and say this is an outrageous infringement on the one China policy in the United States is behaving wrongly. I think that's the current phrase. If we actually sign an agreement, then I think that will be a trigger for the Chinese to retaliate in some fashion. And then they would have to decide if they want to do something that is token and symbolic or if they want to do something that would really matter. As we've discovered in the supply chain debate, the Chinese supply a lot of minerals in particular 
that are crucial to a number of different supply chains, both high-tech and not-so-high-tech, if they wanted to make our lives complicated, they could cut that off. So that's the doing something that matters scenario. Yes. I mean, historically, they're really good at figuring out what to do that hurts us and not them. This is something that would probably hurt both because they sell the stuff they make money. And to the extent they're not selling, they're losing revenue. And most of the projections right now suggest that their economy is heading in for some more difficult times than they've had. So they may be reluctant to do that, but it would make a difference here. How so? Restructure our supply chains. Uh, I mean, I think that's happening anyway, because companies are recalculating the exactly this kind of thing, the political and economic risk of doing business, not only with China, but uh, I mean, Russia is more obvious. So I think companies are scrambling to not necessarily to get out of China, although that's going on, but to find alternative sources of supply. So if you're buying something from China, that's a choke point. In other words, that's your only source. Right now, you're really working hard to find other sources. So if they do what I just was worried about, you've got fallback. The good news would be if everybody figures that out before the Chinese actually do anything, and in which case it won't matter very much. But the truth usually ends up not being quite that happy. Yeah, look, China, China remains the principal source of uh, the materials needed to produce, let's say, battery electric vehicles. All the key minerals that go into the construction of the battery itself and uh, many parts of the vehicle are originally sourced, are predominantly sourced from China. Not exclusively, but if you want to make an electric car, you need to buy some stuff from China. Well, and meanwhile, every producer of anything in the United States, the constant refrain is supply chain, supply chain. Like my dad at 78 years old is building a new house, which I can't really understand. And he says to me, you know, in the spring, oh, well, they tell me it's going to be ready in October. It's not going to be ready in October. I went by there the other day. It's not going to be ready until June. Okay. And I guarantee you, what they're telling him. So supply chain, supply chain, like we don't have lumber and concrete in America. Everybody uses the supply chain. Like I get it if the high tech sensor dishwasher doesn't come in on time. But the last thing we need in this country is more excuses for supply chain. And if we get into that with China, that's that's pretty real. Good rant, Andrew. Wasn't that good? Yes. Yeah, we're, we're proud of you. There's the, we, and we agree completely. Well, you know, <laughs> my dad building a new house is really <laughs> triggered me, obviously. <laughs> hey, you know, if you, if you are successful enough at 78 to get the financing and build a new house, God bless yeah. you. Go for it. Make it happen. That's a set. There ought to be a celebration. Is this there. going to be upsizing or, or downsizing? Is this going to be a four or five bedroom mansion, even though all his kids are moved out? Or is yeah, this going to be downsizing. small? They're up, that's the thing. They're upsizing. So nobody nobody gets it. Nobody gets it. Hey, there's a guy with dreams. I'll take you that. You know what, Scott? That's a really good way. I have now adjusted my thinking. Thank you for that, because that will give yep. me, that will spare me much grief and distress over the coming months until his house is ready in July, not even June. But thank you for that, Scott, because that will that will keep me in a good frame of mind. Look, he's got a decade on me and he's thinking about the future. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Speaking of technology and semiconductors and supply chain, we've talked a lot about technology transfers even today on this episode, which is a very related issue to what's going on in the Russia sanctions. 
Are the Russia sanctions actually working? I think that depends on what you're looking at. If the question is, are we are we successfully destroying their economy? I think the answer there is no, or at least not yet. We've hurt their economy. I think their own forecasts are for a 6% reduction in GDP this year. There are other uh, projections that are larger than that. But if the Russians say that's what's going to happen, can probably assume that something bad is happening. But it's also apparent that they're taking in so much money from oil and gas that they've been able to keep their general economy afloat. And let's not forget, winter is coming. And winter is coming. Your needs to be lit. Which the Russians usually have used to their advantage. You know, ask Napoleon about that, or Hitler for that matter. But, you know, if the question is different, are we degrading their military capabilities? You know, and are we making it harder for them to fight a war? I think the answer to that is yes. I think the sanctions there are holding. Uh, there's always leakage because there are, if uh, for no other reason, that there are criminals out there who make a lot of money uh, selling stuff illegally, and uh, some of them get away with it. And you know, we have a, uh, and other countries in the in the West have enforcement mechanisms to try to stop that, but it's a constant cat and mouse game, and some stuff leaks through. But I think by and large. Those are working. The thing to keep in mind, of course, is that this is not going to cause a sudden collapse in the Russian military machine. It's more like sand leaking out of the bag. They're going to run out of parts. They're already cannibalizing in, in the civilian sector, you know, airplanes in order to keep other airplanes flying. Well, eventually they won't be able to do that. Their commercial flights are going to are going to stop. That's going to happen in in the military sector as well. They're going to run out of ammunition. They're going to run out of chips. They're going to run out of other military equipment. But you know, if they had any brains at all, they were stockpiling before they invaded. So it's going to take time for this to work its way through the economy. But I think the long term projection is that militarily they get weaker, and as long as the rest of us keep supplying Ukraine, they're going to get stronger. But is the Russian economy as a whole going to collapse? No. Yeah, look, let me start by getting out of my lane. I just say that CSIS is full of really a, a ton of experts who work on the issues of life and liberty. And Bill and I work on the pursuit of happiness. So I'm going to make a life and liberty comment to start with, which is I think that we are fighting a different, we being NATO and the Europe, European Union, are fighting a war that's different than the one that Russia is fighting. We are fighting an air power and sanctions war. Russia is fighting a siege. And the technology needs are very different for a siege, okay? I don't know how that factors in, but I do know that just by looking at global oil prices and seeing them under $100 a barrel, that says Russia is finding markets for their hydrocarbons elsewhere. Otherwise, prices would be through the roof Well, globally. So that's happening. And I don't want to underestimate the fact that these the sanctions are going to create real hardship in the European Union. It's going to be cold and dark this this year. In Europe and and with self-governed nations, that what your population thinks about your policies and whether you're supporting this war will come to the forefront pretty soon. Well, that's a great point, Scott. I mean, this is this is one of the key fears that close watchers of this war have is that with winter coming and winter is coming. God, I love saying that winter's coming and Europe is going to really have to buckle down to sustain it with such high prices for oil and gas. So it's going to test their resolve. It's going to test NATO's resolve. It's even with us dealing with inflation here in the United States, it's testing our resolve. Well, of course, keep in mind that winter may be coming, but thanks to climate change, it may not be coming quite as severely as it used to. So that may make a difference. We'll see. Or it might be coming more severely. We'll have to, we'll have to see. Let's turn quickly to Ambassador Tai. 
who was in Iowa last week, where she said both that trade can't only be focused on market access, but that market access remains a key part of what USTR does. Guys, what does this say about U.S. trade policy? Well, I was trying to make sense out of this, and I was hoping Bill could help me with this. But to my knowledge, trade has never been exclusively about market access. It certainly isn't today, but it's always been an integral part of our foreign policy, international economic policy is foreign policy in a lot of ways. But I do also also understand first, when you go to Iowa, you've got to talk about agriculture market access or nobody's listening, which I think she's accomplished that. But second, when it comes to uh, concern for low-income Americans and a trade policy that works for them, it seems to me we're looking in the wrong place. I reflect on our friend Ed Gresser's comments about the fact that about half of American tariffs collected on imports are collected on clothing, shoes, and household goods. There's a lot of money that the less affluent Americans pay. Of course, their larger share of their spending goes to those essential items. Also, Ed points out within categories, the more luxurious the good, the lower the tariffs. So a cashmere sweater has a 4% tariff. A wool sweater has something like a 10% tariff, but an acrylic sweater at the low end, much higher. Same goes for footwear. Uh, So I think there's an opportunity that no one ever talks about which is the U.S. could reduce its tariffs either via negotiation or unilaterally and benefit the people who are at the lower end of the income scale. But I'll stop there. I feel a rant coming from Bill. Well, it it occurs to me listening to her that Disney World comes to mind. She thinks she's in Tomorrowland, but she's actually in Fantasyland. (laughs) When Catherine talks about market access, and and this came up again in, in Iowa. I mean, I think she's sincere in saying, telling Iowa farmers, we want to get more access for your corn and we want to get more access for your soybeans and for your pork. And I think she means it. But the obvious question is, what are you prepared to give in order to get that access? And the answer so far is nothing. You know, we are not prepared to provide more access to our market for other countries' products, including their agricultural products. And I'm sure, you know, Iowa farmers are probably thinking, well, that's the way it should be. They should all be buying our corn and we should not have to buy their bananas or whatever it is that they want to sell here. But unfortunately, trade negotiations don't work that way. And, you know, other countries have demands too. I think the other thing that's starting to bother me more and more is that her argument is, you know, we want a world, we want to create a trading system that is better a world that is better for workers, has better standards and higher standards. And, you know, we've all sort of said, well, that's good. I'm not sure you're you're doing the right thing to get there. But it occurs to me that it's an incredibly sort of U.S.-centric approach. What we're really saying is that what the U.S. thinks is good are standards that everybody else should adopt. So we're saying what we think is good for climate, what we think is good for workers, what we think is good for trade. Other countries should adopt that because it's because we're right and because it's good. And I happen to think that it is good. and We're right about that. But I don't think that's going to be a very successful sales pitch to other countries. You know, do what we want because we think it's the right thing to do. And they're thinking, how am I going to sell more stuff to the Americans? How am I going to get my companies integrated into American supply chains? And that's not what the U.S. is thinking about. You know, I think if we showed a little openness to giving these countries market access, they'd be more inclined to listen to our lectures. At the moment, they're just tired of hearing from us. So uh, what she's proposing, I'm I'm not sure how it works. Well, guys, this has been a great discussion. We got to get Scott back on the beach. So thank you for these insights. Thank you to our listeners for bearing with our rants. 
And uh, we'll see you next week. No, we won't. We're on vacation next week. Oh, okay. So we'll see you a week from next week. We will see you in t- where trade guys are taking a break. I hope Scott stays at the beach. I'm going to a different beach. And Andrew, of course, will be in the office every day next week, I'm sure. Slaving away on our behalf. I will be in the office every day next week. Guys, it's football season. We are grounded. So training camp is upon us in high school. Yeah, we're here. <laughs> so two weeks we will be back okay see you then to our listeners if you have a question for the trade guys write us at tradeguys at csis.org that's tradeguys at csis.org we'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.